Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, and a very warm welcome to the Kākāpō Files from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance, and this is episode 21, which I'm calling for want of anything better to call it, the Kākāpō Waiting Game, because that's what we're all doing, waiting for the Aspergillus outbreak to end and for hopefully lots of healthy birds to come home back to the islands. I'm delighted to report that in the last two weeks there have been no more deaths. The kākāpō population still stands at 142 adults and 72 chicks. Later on in the show, we'll catch up with Daryl Eason from DOC's kākāpō recovery team, and we'll hear from Peter Dearden of Genomics Aotearoa about what we might learn from kākāpō genes and genomes. But first up, let me transport you to Whenuaho, Codfish Island. You'll remember that eight kākāpō chicks were completely hand-reared, first at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital and then in Invercargill. They've been in a rearing pen on Whenuaho for a few weeks now, learning how to eat natural food, cope with the rain, find a place to sleep during the day, important kākāpō stuff like that. The four oldest chicks have been released together on one side of the island. When the next three were released into the wild on the other side of the island a few days later, I was lucky enough to be there for the kākāpō files. With me were Deirdre Verko, Andrew Digby and Daryl Eason from Doc's kākāpō team. Tane Davis from Naitahu, who's a member of the Kākāpō Recovery Advisory Group, and the Minister of Conservation, Eugenie Sage. The three chicks, Tifari 2A, Wa 3A and Marima 1A, were put into dark cloth bags and very carefully carried for half an hour up a muddy track. They were treated as if they were the most precious works of art, but that didn't stop them wriggling and jiggling and carrying on as if the world was going to end. It was dusk on a calm midwinter's day, and the grumpy chicks were quickly given their freedom. When you open him, you just want to let him sit on the ground so he's comfortable and then have your head facing the hopper and then pull it down. So we've just released three of this year's hand-reared kākāpō chicks, which is one of the high points on Whenuaho. And we have one here just nibbling on some kumara. So, so far we've released seven of this year's hand-reared chicks here on Whenuaho. We've left um, one of them behind in the pen down by the hut, and that one is keeping another bird which came from a nest and has just been in hospital company back down in the pen. 
these three are about to have their first night in the wild. They are, yes, and we've just released them near to some hoppers, and we've got pellets in those hoppers, and then we've got fruit and vegetables as well, so kumu and apple. So this one's hanging around, there's another one who's wandered slowly off, and there's one up there who seems to have found another stash of delicious fruit and vegetables. So who's wandered off? Um, Tifri too has wandered off, and he's usually the one that just is all over you. Yeah. But they're really good, actually. Um, Considering they've been struggling and wriggling all the way up the hill, they're really relaxed when they come out of their bag. That's kind of typical for hand-reared birds. So when you were letting that bird go, Eugenie, what were you thinking? Just how wonderful it was that we were letting three birds go today, and once upon a time that would have been the sum total of all the successful breeding. I was also thinking about all of the effort that Department of Conservation staff, volunteers, scientists, uh, all of the support that has enabled this to happen and how very precious those birds are. They're very slow and thoughtful. But they were so boisterous on the way up the hill, (laughs) one of them escaping from your bag almost, sort of kicking in the bags, vocalising. That's what's amazed me, just the calls they make and the variety and how full of character they are. And yet when they were released, they were almost trance-like. They just were really chilled out. But they seem really at home here. This is the, the reward. This time of the night especially, you know, when we're starting to go into darkness. And I just heard from uh, Daryl, you know, uh, the calmness of the birds, you know, at this hour of the night. is pretty special. Yeah, it's really great just to see these guys out into the wild and to hear the kaka as well sort of brings it home a little bit too, just to hear their their cousins up in the trees and yeah, and to see them so relaxed and chilled out is really, really good. And a little bit friendly, but not too friendly, which is great. We don't want them too attached to humans and so they'll be on their way to becoming fully wild kakapo, which is fantastic. We've got some GPS loggers on a couple of these birds, so we'll be able to just get really fine resolution details of where they're moving, getting hourly fixes throughout the night. So, yeah, that'll be fantastic. What are you thinking, Deidre? Over the last week, we've re- released seven hand-reared kākāpō, and I was reflecting on the fact that in previous breeding seasons, that would have been the total sum of chicks produced. So, um, you know, this year we've got ten times as many. <laughs> it's kind of blowing me away at the moment. But, yeah, it's a pretty special moment. It's been a long, hard road to get to this point with each chick, so it's quite a lot of work's gone into getting to this point. It's really, really neat. This one's, I think, falling asleep. I know. He's kind of gone into a bit of a trance. We're wondering what <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> it's all a bit different quite an exciting first night you know there's no edge to this pen just keeps going (laughs) your babies are leaving home I know I always like this moment it's so lovely to see them go out and it's their island now to live on yeah it's wonderful and I like seeing other people see them for the first time and their reaction and yeah they are very captivating to other people it's great to see. I've been thinking about how much things have changed. So when I first spent time on Whenua Ho, 
the entire breeding season was three chicks. Yes. And there were only 51 birds in existence. This year, there's 72 live chicks. It's just incredible. Minister of Conservation Eugenie Sage was given the honour of naming Tifari 2A, whom she helped release. His new name is Tumanako, meaning hope. The next section could be called The Life and Times of a Kākāpō Travel Agent. Birds have been flying up and down the country for health checks, and even Daryl, who always seems to know everything about every kākāpō, admits it's hard to keep up with who is where. This was recorded on Tuesday the 25th of June, by the way, so some birds will have moved since then. You know how it is. Kia ora and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files, Daryl. Hi Alison, great to be back. I feel like we're in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment. You know, it's not the end of the health crisis yet, but uh, things are ticking along quite steadily. Yeah, I feel the same too. And I never quite know from one day to the next just how many birds are where. We're constantly arranging birds' travels and sending them back and forth. So at the moment we've got 27 birds in hospital, but I think tomorrow we should be getting five back from the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, which will be fabulous, and one back from Wild Base at Massey University. Fantastic. So you've obviously still got some birds that are still being treated for aspergillosis, though? Yes, there still are at least 13 birds that are being treated for aspergillosis. Most of them are at Auckland Zoo. And I guess there's still four at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital that will be treated for aspergillosis. And a lot of our birds that have been circulating through Wild Base at Massey University have been the mothers that have had chicks removed and we've been doing a quick turnaround and a CT scan for them, usually two birds at a time, three to four days away from the island and they have been returned with after their scan has shown that they've had negative to aspergillosis. So we're just fairly confident now that we've scanned eight birds in quite quick succession. So who are the eight mothers that you've scanned? Oh gosh, um, Alice and Bella. Actually Bella we found had previously had a broken leg that nobody knew about and it had healed itself. So little things that you learn about scans as well. Nora, Sue, Esperance, Klihi and Tumeki and Solstice are up there at the moment. So Tumeki should be coming home tomorrow and Solstice hopefully on Thursday. But she had a large ovary, much larger than normal that they wanted to check out and biopsy to make sure it wasn't a tumour. But because she was the very last bird to lay back in early April, a month after most of the others had laid eggs, it might be that her ovary takes a bit longer to regress down to the non-breeding size because they often have to shrink by 10 times. So it might be still in that active process. That's really interesting. In the last podcast, Nora was being double-checked for something too because she had a shadow on her lung that no one was quite sure about. What did that turn out to be? It was a shadow on one of her air sacs, actually. It was just fat. So a lot of internal fat, I guess, pressing against maybe the air sac. I'm not exactly sure how it worked. But she got a clean bill of health. Clean bill of health, so that was great to get her back home. Well, that must be a weight off your mind to have had all these mums checked out and or get these clean bills of health so you don't need to continue worrying about them. 
our shores. And it just feels like we're getting further now from the main outbreak, which happened in mid-April through to early May. Um, so as we get further and further from that time and not seeing other birds with aspergillosis in recent times, it feels like there's less and less chance that other birds on the island actually have it. Now you've still got some mums on the island who've got chicks with them out in the wild. You're not going to check those immediately? Not immediately. There's still six mothers. Well, they had 10 chicks between them, but some have come home. So now I think there's 14 chicks between them. So yes, three of those mums have had at least one or two of their chicks um, sent away for a few days and screened and have returned home again and they've all been clear as well. So again, that gives a little bit more confidence that the mum and the other siblings are clear as well. So what happens in that case if you've had a chick that's been hanging around with its mum, you take it away to give it a health check, you bring it back, do you just pop it back in the wild near its mum? Yeah, well, they've all left their nest. Um, So often the mum and the, the chicks are roosting apart during the day, but they get together again at night. So we usually go and try and find the other sibling and release the chick with it. And then they just know where they are again and hopefully the whole family will reunite during the night time. And so far that seems to have been working, certainly with Awarua and Queenie's chicks. Rakiru took a bit of time for her first chick, got back together with them, but I think we're making progress there now. About a week and a half ago, you let some of the hand-reared chicks go. How are they all getting on? Um, they're really good, actually. They wandered in different directions initially. One went up to a bit of an outlook, Observation Rock, I think, and he's found a food hopper, and he's settled in right next to that and doing very well. The other two had to be brought back to their hoppers, but now that they know that they're there, they're doing really quite well. So I'm very happy with their progress. Excellent. And you've got another group on the other side of the island. How are they getting on? They seem to be doing really well also, and I think they, um, they're putting on weight, so they're, they're doing well. So I think we've got three birds left in the enclosure, and we'll just have to finish weaning a couple of them before they can be released. Feels like the end is in sight. Yes, it's getting there. Yes, I'll be particularly happy getting five of the birds back from Dunedin Wildlife Hospital. Who's coming back? Two of he's two of Putters. Margaret Marie Tuvey is also coming back. So Queenie, with the broken leg, she just had a bit of a high white blood cell count. Her pins have been removed last week, and I think there's just follow-up on her blood count and make sure she's entirely healthy once those pins have been removed. And once she is confirmed all fit and well, she and her friend Esperance 1B who had the brain surgery will be ready to come back as well. So hopefully they might only be a week away. So a quick question about Queenie's leg, is it straight? I believe Lisa's very happy with how straight the leg is and the chick's doing very well, getting around nicely. So that part of it is all really good. And out in the wild, I gather that your last chick has fledged. Yes. On Anchor Island, Della had the youngest chick, which was Aparima 1B. So he's about 76 days now, so he fledged earlier this week, which is absolutely fantastic.
News just keeps getting better and better. We still have to keep our fingers crossed for those poor sick birds. How's Cindy? Have you had any news on her? I'm not sure how Cindy's doing, actually. But at this stage, all the birds, they look well enough. But we'll just have to wait and see what their repeat scans look like after their medication period. And I just have one more question, which is about Merv with his cataracts. How's he getting on? Are they doing anything about the cataracts? I believe he's, he's essentially blind in his left eye. He still has reasonable vision, especially forward vision, in his right eye. If anything can be done, it might be a lens change. At this stage, he's making good recovery also because he had an infection in his lower spine and the discs. But I think he's improved considerably and he's looking a lot happier in himself, which is great. Thanks, Daryl. Finally, in episode 21 of the Kākāpō Files, let's talk genes and genomes. And a genome is simply all of the genes in any living organism. How do you sequence a genome? It's apparently like taking a very large phone book, shredding it into millions of strips, each containing a few hundred letters, and then reassembling said phone book. The kākāpō is one of a very small handful of species in which every individual has had its genome sequenced. The Kākāpō Genome Project is managed by DOC in conjunction with Genomics Aotearoa, and here to tell us more is Peter Dearden from the University of Otago. I direct uh, Genomics Aotearoa, and Genomics Aotearoa is a platform project funded by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment to better use uh, genomics and genetics in New Zealand. Currently we're at nine institutions, which includes a number of universities and uh, Crown Research Institutes in the countries. Can you tell me about the Kākāpō Genome Project? The Kākāpō Genome Project has a reasonably long history. Five or six years ago, some of the key people in, in Kākāpō biology, including people from the Department of Conservation and the University of Otago, as well as overseas people, decided that actually one thing that should be done is, is to generate a high-quality genome of the, of the Kākāpō, so an understanding of what sorts of genes are present in the, in the Kākāpō genome, but also with funding from, from crowdsourcing that they might sequence the genomes of every single living Kākāpō. So there's kind of two aspects. One is to, to generate a high-quality genome of the Kākāpō and then to look at what we could learn from understanding the genomes of all the Kākāpō that were alive at the time. So tell me about that high-quality genome. Now, I think that was from a female called Jane, who is sadly deceased. That's right. So Jane's genome DNA was extracted by Bruce Robertson here at Otago, and that DNA was sequenced in uh, the States. The high-quality genome really means a genome where you've got the DNA of each of the chromosomes of the, of the species, and you have a really good understanding of what genes are there. So it's a, it's a fairly big undertaking. And they've used lots of different techniques to try and put that, that genome together so that it's the best that it can be. And I think that's really critical if you're... The next question you kind of want to ask are how does that genome help you understand kākāpō as a species and perhaps deal with some of the, the issues that they have? You're going to need to have a really nice genome to underpin that kind of work. I've heard Andrew Digby talking about Jane's genome and he's described it as being a platinum genome, which of course we all know that platinum frequent flyers, for instance, are the very top tier. So it's as good as it can be. And I gather it's one of only three platinum genomes for birds available at the moment. One of the key things about the sort of idea of a platinum genome is that there's been a whole bunch of new technologies which have taken the next generation sequencing, which really produces a, a massive cloud of data, and better turns it into the, the sort of linear DNA sequence that you would need for each chromosome. 
So those technologies have really only been around for a few years. And Jane's, I guess, one of the, the leading genomes uh, in the bird space for, for being assembled in that way. But as you say, as well as Jane's super good genome, there's also a whole lot of other kākāpō genomes that have been done now, I think from all the living kākāpō and a few of the dead ones, which I think is more than 170 genomes, is that right? I think we're at about 150 genomes. With these sorts of processes, you know, we've got to get samples of, of these kākāpō and you know, kākāpō unfortunately live in places where it's, it's not that easy to get samples. Then those samples need to be kept in the right way so we can extract high-quality DNA, and then that high-quality DNA has to be sequenced. And there's obviously going to be failures all the way along, so we've had a, a number of birds where we haven't actually been able to generate a good genome, but we do have about 150 really good data uh, for genomes for these particular birds. Now, having all of these kākāpō genomes, what's that going to mean for helping save the kākāpō? Can we talk about some of the ways that it might be useful in the future. So uh, one of the things we hear a lot about kākāpō is inbreeding, the fact that they don't have a great amount of genetic diversity. And Bruce Robertson, your colleague from the University of Otago, based on previous work he's done, he's already developed a thing called the Matrix, and he's got this index of relatedness, and I've seen Daryl Eason sitting there using it, going, oh, that's not a good genetic match, would be much better if, if this female mated with this male here, how can we make that happen? Can you tell me a bit about how it might tell us more about inbreeding. Inbreeding is obviously a critical um, thing that needs to be managed in this population. And I think the previous work that's been done to generate an understanding of the pedigree and then uh, looking at, at markers to, to look at inbreeding has really done a fantastic job to enable people to, to as you say, with, with Daryl, to be able to say, actually, we, we, we don't really want these two individuals mating. The genomics probably is going to give us a deeper understanding of that, but I don't really think that it's going to change our understanding of how to deal with inbreeding. One thing it may allow us to do is to, to perhaps identify particular genetic variants which we know don't work well together and to be able to avoid those kind of mating. So we may get more precise information about what individuals should be bred together, but I don't think in terms of just general inbreeding that we're going to do uh, terribly much more than, than has already been achieved by the fantastic work of, of Bruce and others in that space. Another big problem is, of course, infertility. We've heard a lot about that this year. Basically, only a third of the kākāpō eggs that are laid end up hatching into chicks, which is not a good return, really. So, again, what might we learn from the genomes? So this is where things get kind of interesting. What we do have from, from the Department of Conservation is that they have a good understanding of the phenotypes of many of the, of the kākāpō. So the sort of characteristics, which include things like inbreeding and uh, infertility and, and, and various other things. Using the genomes, we can use a technology called a, an association study, which allows us to associate genetic variation across the genome with particular traits. This is used extensively in agriculture and in research and even in human health, where we're asking questions about what sorts of genetic variations in a population are often associated with particular traits or diseases and what, which ones are associated with not having those particular traits and diseases. So using those kind of approaches, we hope that we might be able to find genetic variation where we can say that this sort of variation probably underpins the phenotypes, the, the characteristics of infertility um, that we're seeing there. This is very, very challenging, and it's challenging for a couple of reasons. The first reason is there's only 150 birds in this experiment. For similar experiments in humans, there are often hundreds of thousands of individuals looked at. So we're looking at a very small population 
Alongside that, because they're relatively inbred, we don't expect there to be a lot of genetic variation in the genomes at all. So it may be that these sorts of technologies may not get us the answers that we're looking for, but we are working with experts and, and trying to do this sort of association work in very small populations. So with luck, we'll be able to find some sorts of variations that, that might give us an idea of how to help manage the breeding of these of the species. So the key thing about that will obviously be the fact that you have all this biological information that Doc has collected over the years, and you can marry that up with the genetic information. That is absolutely critical, and I think that data is, is just a goldmine of interesting things. And we're very lucky to be in the position where the genome sequences have been generated through crowdfunding and, and well, well looked after, and then this data of the characteristics of the birds. Again, it's a really fantastic opportunity to do something quite cool. Another big issue this year, and it's been an issue for different reasons in previous years, so disease. In previous years they've had issues with a disease called cloacitis. That doesn't seem to have been a problem this year, but of course we have the terrible health crisis with aspergillosis. So what might we learn about kakapo's susceptibility to disease? What might the genome tell us about their immune system, for instance? Again, I think the, the, the sorts of approaches we're looking at are to, again, see what sort of genetic variation is associated with susceptibility to these diseases. Alongside this, we have to recognise that genomics may provide some solutions from the other end of this. We we have work with Mike Taylor in Auckland who's looking at whether they can identify some of the, the microbes which might be responsible for, for some of these diseases. Because we have a group of people together working on the Kakapo genome, we've, we've reached out to the Department of Conservation to see if we can identify the strains of, of aspergillus that are causing these effects. And, and because aspergillus may be a reflection of some other health concern that we don't know about to do some work using genomics to perhaps identify other possible causes for those diseases. So there's kind of two aspects of that, and I'm really glad that, that we're both looking at the genome to see if we can see any association between the aspergillosis that we have at the moment and, and genetic variants, but also can we identify what these particular pathogens are that are causing these diseases with the hope that we can pass that back to the vets as something that they can help target drug treatments, for example, to, to clear those diseases. I think one of the really cool things about this project is, is we've got a group together to really look at those sequenced genomes, but they're also very much prepared to say, well, you know, in this situation where there is a disease-causing problem, what else can we do? Are there other things we can help with? It may be that we discover nothing, but at least we're not sitting on our hands waiting for this disease to spread. What other interesting questions could you look at using the genomes? And I'm thinking things that might not be so directly related to the day-to-day -day conservation management of the birds. From an evolutionary sense, kakapo are really remarkable birds. And I think that just comparing the genomes of Jane and perhaps the, all, the genomes of all the other birds as well might help us better understand some of those remarkable characteristics that they've evolved. Obviously, such work has been done in things like Kiwi and Moa and, and looking to see, you know, can we find the genomic signatures of what has built that really remarkable uh, life history? But I think there's lots to be done there to ask questions about how did this really remarkable and strange animal evolve and, and why has it, has it evolved that way and what does that mean for its normal genetics? What's the time frame for all of this work? Are we talking months, years, decades? <laughs> <laughs> oh, genomics is, is not a fast art, unfortunately. So we've been very concerned that we're not going to do anything with the data until we, we had permission from the Department of Conservation and permission from NITAHU in particular to, to use the data. So the first things that we, we then do is we take all of those genomes, 150 genomes, and we ask what sort of genetic variants are there in those. That is 
um, actually an enormous amount of uh, computational work, and it's taken us several months to do that. I'm, I'm glad to say that that's come to the end. So in the next couple of weeks, we should be able to say these, this is a variation in each of these different kākāpō. And then the fun really starts. How is that related to the phenotypes? What can we use that information for? So things are going slowly, but things are moving, and I'd like to predict that we would have our findings written up in, in a year or so. But this being genomics, I suspect that I'm being a little bit too ambitious. What's the thing that excites you most about this project? I'm an insect uh, geneticist, and so this is this is not my area really at all. And it's a real delight for me to be able to bring some of the skills that I've developed over the years to a species that I regard as iconic and important and, and maybe with a bit of luck make a difference to their management so that we can have them for the future. It's a really good thing to be doing. Thanks Peter. Keeping with the gene theme, the Kakapo team at DOC is anxiously awaiting the paternity test results that will let them know who all the dads are. They are especially keen to know if any of the artificial insemination efforts were successful. That will be coming to a Kākāpō Files episode soon. But until then, if you've missed any episodes or want to check out some photos, simply head to rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō. You probably know this already, but you can subscribe to us as a podcast at your favourite place, including but not limited to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you are looking for more things to listen to, Can I recommend some great award-winning podcasts by some of my very talented RNZ colleagues? The true crime podcast Gone Fishing has won top awards at both the New Zealand Radio Awards and the New York Festivals. Beyond Kate, which looks at 125 years of women's suffrage in New Zealand, took out a gold at the New York Festivals as well. That 125 years of universal suffrage is of course because New Zealand was the first country in the world where women won the right to vote. Catch you next time on the Kākāpō Files, but until then, I'm Alison Balance. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.